And we are, we're going to continue our series in Philippians this morning. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off uh, in chapter one. And you're like, wow, we're going really slowly through this. And, and I just, this is, uh, you know, I try to pretend like I'm really cool. You know, like I wear cool shoes and I dress kind of cool. I guess cool from like six years ago. Mirel and I had this conversation that like basically skinny jeans are the new sweater vest. And you can find out like, oh, that person is an old millennial because they're still dressing that way. And Jeff sh- shook his head really emphatically. So yeah, I look old. Anyway, uh, I try to look cool and everything like that, but I'm a nerd and you guys also have figured that out too. But the language that the Bible is written in, in the New Testament specifically, the Greek is very dense. Like there, there's so many things happening with each specific word, like each individual word, there's so much happening. And that's why we typically go really slow through particularly books like Philippians, because there's so much happening. So today we'll look at at three verses in Philippians, and I'm going to read them to get us get us started this morning. It's Philippians chapter one, verses 27 to 30. Philippians one, verses 27 to 30, and this is what it says. Paul writes, "Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ." Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, that you're striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggles that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. As I was saying, I try to pretend to be cool, but I'm not. Uh, one of the things that I try, I've tried to keep secret, some of y'all are finding out, uh, is that I play the game of golf. I don't, did you guys know that? I play golf. Did anyone else, anyone else here play golf? Nobody else plays golf a few times. So golf uh, is a really funny sport. Uh, And it's really funny for me. I grew up playing when I was a kid because my dad was like, hey, one day you're going to have to learn how to play golf and you're going to go out there with your bosses. I think he had visions of me having a career that was a little bit more than what it's turned out to be, (laughs) where golf playing would be important. But anyway, I learned at a young age, and, and if the weather is just right, like if it is not too wet and not too dry, uh, if my clubs are in like the tip-top shape, and if I have the right mindset, which typically involves if it's in the morning, the right kind of coffee, if it's in the afternoon, the right kind of, you know, Coors Light, and if the course is, is really good, like if, it's, if the trees are the right width apart from each other and the greens are the right kind of softness, Uh, and that the people I'm playing with are really nice and aren't intimidating me too much, Uh, if all of that is good, I am great at golf. Like, I am really good for for an average person. The other day, it was so great, I got a birdie. Uh, Two of y'all know what that means. It's just really good. And I was like, I am so good at golf. But uh, if it rains a little bit, or if it's a little too hot, or the wind is blowing, or I'm not in the right mindset, 
Or if uh, my clubs start to uh, get a little too sticky on the, the handle there, I am really bad at golf. And so really, basically, uh, professionals would say I lack the resilience and the consistency to be good at golf no matter what. And that's some of like, I'm pretty sure David uh, and Sarah are really good at golf. Congrats to them on having another baby, by the way. But I think they're like, they're exceptionally good at golf because it doesn't matter. Like the professionals, it rains, it's windy, it's cloudy, it's, you know, they had a bad day that morning. They're still good because they have resilience with their skills. Uh, That's just a bit of a fun example. But if we were to talk about life, uh, can you consistently live a good life? Uh, Even if there's hospital visits thrown in. Uh, even if you don't have the right kind of food in your stomach, in your diet, if your car breaks down, uh, if the the traffic is worse today than it was yesterday, uh, if your parents do that one thing that brings you back to your childhood and really throws you off on a short phone call, even then can you do like the good life? Can you be resilient? When your plans start to fail, uh, when you begin to see your, your work not working, or when your view of yourself begins to kind of crumble underneath your feet, will you still have a good, resilient life? Uh, While in the book of Philippians, rejoice, this word rejoice, gets a lot of play. Like people think of Philippians, they're like joy, right? I mean, it's it's written up there, uh, joy. But I think that another key theme, or really it's almost like an anthem, that Paul keeps coming back to is a little combination of words. And he changes them ever so slightly just to fit, you know, grammar and stuff like that. But the words are, whatever happens. He keeps coming back to it. He will in later chapters and later passages, he'll keep coming back to whatever happens. Whatever happens. He's talking about a resiliency. We've already seen this. Uh, it's, it's whatever's true, whatever happens, God will carry it out to completion. He'll finish it. God is someone who it's like, whatever happens, any circumstance, he's going to finish what he started. That's in chapter one, verse five. It's also true of Christ in you or in Christ's relationship to you. Paul says in 119, he says, whatever happens, it's gonna turn out for deliverance. Christ will be exalted, whatever happens in your life. It's also true for Christ through you. He says later in that same sort of passage. He says, whatever has happened to me, the gospel will advance. It's this whatever happens. And now in this passage, Paul says, it's to be true of your life, like the conduct of your life. Whatever happens, whatever happens in the future, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he's talking about an integrated life, of belief, that his grace, his truth, his love, his forgiveness, his mercy, all of that, whatever is going on in your life, you will display it to the full. Uh, For just a little example, because I think this can be a squishy thing, like what does it mean to conduct your life with the gospel? The gospel at its essence is about resurrection and hope, that the death was defeated in Jesus, that he came out of the grave. That's like the, the fulcrum of our entire faith, Therefore, you should live a life in line with death has been defeated, which would be filled with lots of courage, would be filled with lots of, uh, you know, 
freedom in the face of opposition or hard things or trials, which is even, you know, in this passage, he's specifically talking to them about how they're going to experience and they are experiencing opposition. Just a quick little nerdy aside, this isn't like people being led to the stake and eaten by lions kind of persecution. Like that does, that does happen for a brief period of time during the Roman Empire. But what he's talking about here is much more of like they're going to lose their businesses. They'll lose social status. They're being opposed even in family relationships. They're losing their reputations. They're losing their ability to vote. Uh, these sorts of things. And Paul says, whatever happens with that stuff, Live a life worthy of the gospel, integrated faith into your daily life, no matter what, no matter what. A life of unity, a life of collective faith, he's describing, without fear. A life of belief in the midst of struggle. Uh, faithfulness, even when there's famine going on. And that's what this passage is about. That just whatever happens, Keep doing exactly a life in line with who Jesus is and what he's done. Stand firm, conduct yourself worthy, right? I mean, it's not a hard passage to explain. Uh, but here's the bit of honesty, like for you. Like, how are you actually doing at that? That no matter what's going on in your life, are you doing well? in conducting yourself in line with the gospel. Whatever circumstances, when things go bad, how does it go? You know, generally when things are going good and everything's aligned, you know, I behave pretty good. Like my conduct is great. Uh, or when the situation seems to be a little bit more intense, you know, like when you go to a nice restaurant and they have like, Mirel and I went to a gala the other day for her work and there were all of the forks and the spoons, you know? And I was like, I was on top of it. Like I knew like I was cutting the little tomatoes the right way and I was eating, my manners were incredible. My conduct was great because it was like, look, this, these people are wearing bow ties and stuff. So, right? So sometimes when it seems like the level's raised up, we really rise to the occasion for a moment, right? When things are going well or it seems important, we do well. But when things are bad or things seem unimportant or things seem mundane, we don't really live that resiliency, do we? We don't have that whatever happens. Um, and this might be rude, and so I apologize. But I'm going to say it anyway. It's kind of like, no offense, but here's my offense. I think that we're confused on how living a life of faith actually works. I think you're confused. I think that's why we lack consistency. And that's, maybe that's the root thing. You're like, I'm an intelligent person, Brad. This is an affront to my ego. And I, and I mean no harm, but I think we're confused. We're confused in three ways, and I'm going to go through them now. I think one thing is we're confused uh, because we think that we have to prove ourselves. We think we read passages like this, and you're like, right, I need to pull up my energy and my effort and conduct myself well, like me at the gala, Right? I need to just focus really hard. And when Paul uses language like this, this whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, he actually, in almost everything he writes, he says in one form or another, live a life worthy of your calling, 
live a life worthy of your status or your citizenship. In this case, he's saying conduct yourself, but he's always saying something a lot more than be nice, be moral, be pure. He's actually, he's saying something subversive that isn't about proving yourself. Uh, In Roman law, there were Roman citizens, just like any society. Uh, Roman citizens had the privilege of they could walk anywhere in the world, not just in the Roman Empire, but anywhere in the world, and they would be feared and revered. They could even, they could negotiate things on behalf of Rome, even though they had nothing to do with what was happening in Rome. Why? Because they're Roman citizens. They could buy land. They could get married freely. They could call on the governor or even the emperor and have an audience with them or the senators. The Roman citizens were the only ones that were able to have roles and like officers of the military or even in any government position at all. Like you had to be a citizen. And at that time, there's just to give you a picture, 40% of the population were slaves who had zero rights, no rights at all. Then there was another group of people who just kind of existed, kind of like the people around Jerusalem. They just kind of existed underneath the authority and the control of citizens. And then there was this other strata, the Roman citizen. And of that, there were two groups. And this, I mean, we love to separate. This is one of the things like history keeps repeating itself. We just keep creating different strata of humans. But there was the, the full citizens, the non-optima iure which were the people who were citizens, but they couldn't own stuff or vote. And then there were the optimo iure. They could vote and they could own stuff. Those were the two citizen classes. Now, this is what's weird about Roman society. I know you all want this. You're like, I think about the Roman Empire all the time. Isn't that like a meme? (laughs) I don't. Just to be honest, World War II, yes, all the time. Yeah. Uh, But... This is what's, what's interesting. There was no like, legal document or paperwork or even a, a seal or anything like that that proved you were a citizen. Like no passport, no nothing. It was just something that uh, you had to, if people began to question, I wonder if Brad's a Roman citizen. They would look at these things. They would think, uh, well, what are his relational connections? Who are his friends? That proves that they're a citizen and they have this status. Uh, or they would look at what clothes does he wear? Oh, okay, that proves. Oh, how does he speak Latin? Oh, that proves who he is and that he's a citizen. How does his name work? Like, how does, what is his last name? Oh, that proves. Who are his parents? Who are his siblings? And that all of that was kind of built together, how they treated others, how they behaved, their name, all of that kind of proved your status as a citizen. And so if you were a citizen, you were always constantly demonstrating your worthiness to that title. Because without your behavior and the way that you act and the way that you speak and all of those things, people would assume, oh, you're not, you're not a citizen. They would begin to question it. Because it wasn't by birth, it wasn't by ethnicity or anything like that. It was based on those Factors alone. And so when Paul tells people over and over again, conduct yourself worthy of the gospel, he's turning this entire culture on its head. Because the gospel, because he's saying live a life worthy of the gospel, is about Jesus and his life, how he lived it out, who his father is, 
Jesus is like, well, my father's like the king and the glory of all heaven and the cosmos. It's about how he related to humanity. It's about the words that he spoke. It's about his, his very name, which means that he saves all things. The gospel is also about his death, that he performed and loved so well that he died. And then it's about his resurrection, that he w- walks out of the tomb and is alive once and for all. It's, it's his performance. The Christianity is all about, oh, how did Jesus perform? Who was Jesus? What is his glory like? And then the, the hope of all Christianity is that by believing in Jesus, you've been granted all of that stuff that he performed is granted to you. Uh, this is what nerdy people call the participatory nature of the cross. That, that Jesus has somehow brought us into being embodied into all that he is, and we are somehow participants in all of it. That, that his identity becomes our identity. All of his doing is granted to us as if we did all of those things. It's about his status. Oh, who is he? What has he done? Oh, that's who I am. And so just to say, like, we're confused. We think we have to prove ourselves and prove like, look, see, I really am a good Christian boy. But really, to live a life worthy of the gospel means you've already been made worthy of the status as a son or a daughter of Jesus. And we've been firmly placed into this new realm, this new world of life, of hope, of, of, of being, of who we are, and nobody can take it away. So Paul says, conduct yourself worthy of the gospel. So like, just suppose uh, you were a refugee, okay? Uh, that can be hard for us, but imagine you're a refugee, you lost your home, you lost your place, uh, you ran away, you left, you probably lost many family members, and now you're in a refugee camp. And you're, you're in a world where you don't have any rights, you're confined to that camp. Each day you wake up trying to find people who you might know, you find food however you can. There's no schools, there's no education, there's nothing for you except to live in that camp, and that is your whole life. And the rest of the world, politicians and governments are trying to figure out what to do with you. But you have no ability to decide for yourself. You're just like glad that you're there, but you've lost everything. Now suppose uh, England, for example, says, you know what? We're gonna take you as a refugee and bring you to our country. And you say, yeah, sounds good. They, they take you, still, you're, you know, leaving further away from your country. They bring you there, uh, and this would be before Brexit, Brexit, I guess, but uh, they would place you in the country and they would give you a home. They would give you uh, all of the privileges that come with being a citizen of the United Kingdom. They would, they would grant to you, hey, because of you know, their treaties with refugees, you are now English. Suppose that's what they did to you. And with it, you know, in England, it's pretty impressive. That's why the illustration doesn't work with America. But in England, what that would mean is you would have health care. You would have uh, access to education all the way through. You would have the opportunity to vote. You would be given a passport. You'd be given access to loans. You would be given all of these things, right? As a new citizen of England, no longer a refugee. What would you do if you were given all of that? 
you would live, right? Not as a refugee. You wouldn't be like, oh, I just got to wake up each day and, you know, try to survive. You would say, oh, no, I've been given these privileges. I should go take advantage of them, right? You would sign up for school. You would sign up for health care. You would, you would register to vote. You would do all of the things on and on. And you would also, and this happens, you would embody that place. You would learn the language. You'd learn how to speak. You would even change, you know, the way you talk. You would learn the anthems. You would celebrate the holidays. You would figure out the customs. Why? Because you've been made a citizen. And the same is true. When you have been raised to new life in Jesus, you then begin to walk in all of the privileges that that is. You've been united with Christ, so you get to enjoy all of the privileges that come with it. Paul writes, Conduct yourself worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And that's it. Live in the power of the gospel. Not to prove yourself, but to take advantage of where you've now been placed. Embody the anthems of of Jesus. Embody the celebrations. Embody the ethic. Not to show everyone that you're a Christian, but because you now live in the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing we're confused about. I think we're also confused about, we think that um, apathy is a virtue. We think that to not care is like the best. Uh, Stoic philosophers from Greece, uh, they were some of the first people to say this. Also, Chinese philosophers at the same time kind of describe apathy as being totally free from any expectations. You know, empty yourself from wanting things. live a life without aim or purpose, then you won't be shaken. You won't be disappointed. Uh, Accept what's coming your way. Kind of become a bystander in the world. Paul, though, says, I hope that you guys strive together. So we think, ah, man, to be a Christian means to kind of, I don't care anymore what happens to me. I don't care about anything. You know, I got Jesus, apathy, it's a virtue. Striving, according to, you know, Google and dictionaries, is this, to make great efforts to achieve or obtain something or to fight vigorously for something. That's what striving means. Give big effort to achieve. Fight for something. So depending on how old you are, uh, you might have been filled with some of the 90s Disney propaganda against striving. There was a lot. Because in the 90s, they had all of these live-action movies about adults who were trying to accomplish things, and it was really clear those adults are bad. You know, I mean, there's a good example. Scar in Lion King, bad. We shouldn't strive for the kingdom like Scar. But all the others, there was a lot. Uh, there was the guy with the dog and Beethoven who was just so busy, and the mom was so busy too. You know, It's like, ah, oh, don't be like them. They're striving. Uh, or uh, Robin Williams in the movie Hook, you know, he's like using his cell phone and he's talking and he's, you know, trying to just do his job, but he's missing stuff, striving dad, don't be like that. He forgot who he was, he's Peter Pan. Uh, my favorite, when this is a real deep cut, and I don't even think it's anywhere, but, you know, Sinbad and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger were in a movie, Jingle All the Way in which, same thing, which is, it's kind of funny, apparently Arnold Schwarzenegger 
became in charge of this big business, which I guess, I mean, he was the governor of our state, so anything is possible in real life. But his whole thing is he forgot that it was Christmas, and so he had to go buy this Christmas gift, and he's working really, really hard, and then in the end, it's like, oh, Dad, I just wanted you to be here with me, you know? Striving is bad. Or Tina Fey, this is a more modern one, in 30 Rock, she's always trying to have it all, and it's really like, well, she smells bad, and her apartment's falling apart, and you know, her, all of her life is, but she's trying to have it all. Don't be like Tina Fey. Don't strive. You know, you should just be chill. Uh, same is true within the church. We think of striving in negative light. Uh, you're doing things in your own strength. Don't do things in your own strength. You're idolizing your career. Don't do that. Don't care about your career. Uh, you're trying too hard. In fact, I think often our picture of holiness seems to be somebody who's doing it effortlessly. Like the, the really holy people are able to do their life without any effort at all. And if it takes effort, you're probably doing it wrong. Because after all, if God wants you to do something, he should empower you and then it will be easy. Whatever he calls you to do, it will be easy. And if it's not easy, you probably miss the signs and you're doing the wrong thing. Uh, when the disciples were caught in the storm and Jesus was asleep, Matthew says that they were striving, the exact same word, striving against the storm, battling against the winds, and then Jesus wakes up and he calms the sea. Striving is bad, right? Um, Jesus also said this. This is the ultimate don't strive. This is like the baseline of all of those movies. It says, what does it benefit a man, Jesus said? To gain the whole world, but to lose their soul. What does it benefit a person to gain the whole world and then lose their soul? Don't strive, right? Except in this passage, Paul tells them, live a life worthy of the gospel, and that should entail standing firm and striving together. Same word that they were using against the ocean, strive. Strive for the faith of the gospel. And he makes it very clear, striving Big, extraordinary ambition, lots of effort, lots of fighting. It's like the definition from Google or dictionary applied to you. That's what you should do. Here's two caveats about what that, what does that mean then? Is the Bible just all over the place? Well, one is this striving, Paul says, is to be done together. Strive together. We undertake this great effort, this great ambition not as lonesome heroes on some sort of quest, but as a community of saints. The temptation is always to go alone. Just go alone. Fight for faith alone. But Paul says, have one singular mind. Do it with your fellow believer and fight and strive and have this extraordinary effort and ambition together. Uh, the, you know, the academic-y person in me thinks of you know, the St. Crispin's Day speech by, you know, William Shakespeare, very fancy in that line. He says, when they're talking about getting ready for this battle and that they're going to go in it together, and it says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, let's go fight the war. Uh, but the less, you know, intelligent part of me thinks of Liverpool Football Club. The, in our family, we, talk, we joke about how it's God's team. And we're like, oh, well, God, God loves them. Uh, 
With the Lakers, we talk about like it's our team and we just love the Lakers, but there's no like redeeming quality in it. But with Liverpool, we actually believe God's bringing his kingdom through this soccer team. And that's probably a problem. But anyway, uh, with Liverpool, the most popular song, most sung song in the city of Liverpool is not by the Beatles or Paul McCartney. It's by this band, Jerry and the Peacemakers. And the song is, You Will Never Walk Alone. And it is incredible. I, here's the homework. Go home, watch a YouTube video of people in Liverpool singing this song that they've been singing since the 60s. And it keeps growing in meaning. So for part of it, there was this terrible tragedy where a lot of fans died in, a, in the stadium. It was really awful. And, and they began to sing this song even more with even more gusto. Before the game starts, they sing it to remind each other that we are all in this together. Uh, when the, the mining crisis happened and the dock workers went on strike and the economic part of that northwest part of England totally was destroyed, this song just kept getting sung more and more and more, and it will give you chills. I have them right now. You don't because you haven't heard it. But this is what the words are of the song. And there's a Mumford and Sons version of it that's very good. It says this, when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain for your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart You'll never walk alone. It's their song, it's their anthem together. And that's basically what Paul is saying. Strive together through the storm. The other thing about this striving is its aim is Jesus. The aim of all of this effort is not for better logistics or better life or better morality. It's fighting for faith in the gospel. It's an ambition for more and more of Jesus. The hunger for a deeper knowing of his goodness, the fighting against idols of of faith and false narratives that we believe. And instead we're like, oh no, I wanna strive to to cling on to and to trust Jesus. Uh, Here's just a little bit more context for the quote of Jesus I read earlier. He said in full, the full quote is, Whoever wants to follow me, he told his disciples, they have to die to themselves, leave all the other ambitions behind, pick up their cross and follow him. I mean, these are words of intense energy that would require lots of ambition of, no, I see Jesus, I wanna follow him wherever he goes. And then he says, what does it benefit a person to gain the whole world, but to lose their soul? Jesus is calling you to a higher ambition. And Paul's echoing it here. Make great, costly effort to follow Jesus together. The last thing that I think that we get confused about is uh, we think that today is the end. We think that today is the end. Uh, We often lose heart In fact, Paul tells Timothy in one of his personal letters, do not grow weary in doing good, right? It gets quoted a lot by politicians. Don't grow weary in doing good. Why did Paul say that? Because it's easy. 
to grow weary, right? Are you guys full of the energy? No, it's easy to grow weary. It's easy to believe that this is just what it is, that what's happening now in my life, what's happening now in this world is what it's always gonna be like. In fact, uh, this is often how we make sense of the world, that the world is predictable and consistent. Uh, The entire scientific method is built on the world being predictable and consistent. So, for example, if I drop a bowling ball off of the roof a hundred times, if I take a bowling ball up to this roof and I drop it, a hundred times out of a hundred, it will fall to the ground. Why? Because the world is predictable, right? Also, if I take that same bowling ball and I travel around the whole world, I go to a roof in China, I go to a roof in Africa, I go to a roof in Europe, and I take the bowling ball and I throw it off, it will fall every time. It's consistent, right? And that's basically how we've figured out anything that we know in science, correct me if I'm wrong, some of the scientists, is that, the, is that we base it all off of this theory of if it happens here, it'll happen again, it'll happen again. The world is predictable and consistently consistent. And this is often how we make sense of our own lives too, uh, where we're in the metaphorical deserts or valleys. What's happened before is gonna happen again. Uh, when we find ourselves at the end of another dead-end project, it's happening again because the world is predictable. Uh, when we have another overwhelmingly stressful family situation or fight or discord, we're like, yes, this is how the world works. When everything about what you think your calling is to follow Jesus and whatever vocation you have, and it seems haunted and distorted and hard still, you're like, that's right, the world is predictable. It's broken in all of these places. Life is consistent. No matter what, things will always remain hard. Uh, The corrupt people in power are always going to be the people in power. The suffering of today is going to be the suffering forever. Uh, The pain of today is going to be the pain tomorrow. The brokenness of today will continue to be brokenness forever and ever. The things that I'm afraid of today will actually come true, and I'll be afraid of them tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Everything that I struggle with now, I will always struggle with. But Paul says, and this is good, do all of this without being frightened because you will be saved by God. Conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel, strive, do all this, and do it without fear because you will be saved by God. I, yeah, I love this. God is predictable. He's so predictable. He saves. Uh, Adam and Eve, overwhelmed with shame and agony and pain and suffering and discord and all of those things, and yet God is like, I'm going to cover your shame. Uh, the people of Israel are, are enslaved in Egypt, and what does God do? God saves. People are in the desert, ignoring God creating idols, all of these things. What does God do? He comes and he saves them. The people are in exile, been destroyed. They've been taken all over the world. What does he do? He keeps saving those people, keeps calling. He's still present. He's with them. 
Ultimately, God is so predictable, uh, he saves through Jesus on earth. That all of the things that prophets foresaw and foretold come true in Jesus because who is God? What is he doing on this world? What is he doing with the entire universe? He's saving it. He's so predictable. And he's also incredibly consistent. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians, he saves all of us. The, the Jew, the Gentile, the Greek, the woman, the man, the slave, the free, the soldier, the merchant, the rich, the poor, the African, the Asian, the Roman, he saves them all. Doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what your story's like, he is consistent. He will save. And that is actually what all, the whole fabric, or use C.S. Lewis's world, words like the deep magic of the world, is that God is both predictable and consistent. And what he does is he always saves it. He will redeem it. And the Christian trust uh, just moves way beyond present powers and struggles. Like what we trust in goes so much further, goes way deeper into history in the future. That Jesus is the true king now and forevermore, that the power of the Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is both then and now and forever. And all of this empowers us to live as people of grace in a really graceless world, of people of unity in a world that's very divided, of people of forgiveness in a world that just wants its pound of flesh. Why? How would we live that way without fear? Because the things today are not the things in the future. The predictability fabric of the world is actually God's goodness and his grace, his death and his resurrection. That's that's it, because he's made it so. So, just to correct all of your bad thinking, you don't have to prove anything. You're just a citizen of the kingdom of God. You need to just claim those privileges of heaven. Begin to live like you're there. Uh, And you can strive. Have an outlandish ambition that you would know Christ and his suffering and his resurrection. Like, have a great ambition and strive for it. Today is not the end. The end of your life is hope, firmly established forever. So as Paul says at the very end of this passage, he says, it's been granted to you not only to believe in him. I mean, that's, man, what a privilege that we get to believe in Jesus. But also, we get to suffer for him. So let's conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, no matter what is happening, no matter what will happen. Stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you that you are uh, able to be the one that we put our great ambition in, that you're so worthy. I'm just in awe of your 
yeah, predictability to redeem our stories, to restore our lives. Um, and as we go into communion, I, I pray that it would be a time of great celebration and joy in who you are and what you've done. Uh, thank you, Jesus. Amen.